Hello everyone and welcome to the Giant Brain Lecture Theatre. I'm Ian McAllister and I'll be your interviewer tonight. My guest tonight will be familiar to those of you listening who play tabletop RPGs. He's had his artwork appear in numerous titles including the revival of the Dragon Warriors RPG and the Lord of the Rings RPG when it was produced by Cubicle 7. He's had experience as an art director, deputy CEO and creative director but now his journey has taken him on a different path. He's built up his own company, Handiwork Games, over the last few years, with projects like Beowulf, the recently revived A-State, and a series of card games made with his kids. It's my great pleasure to welcome John Hodgson to the Giant Brain HQ. How are you doing, John? I am good. Yeah, it's lovely to be here. Thank you very much for asking me. It sounds good, doesn't it, all that? It is funny. (laughs) To think about it, you know, there's always something in front of me that we're working on or is on fire, but yeah, I like all that. Yeah, you got to summarize on that. I mean, the first question is obviously, is how's the dog? Because I saw you p- posting pictures of the long dog yeah, today. Yeah, no, love, love greyhounds. My first dog was a greyhound. Oh, he's lovely. Yeah, we, we got him about a year ago. Finn, he's called, and he's he's really coming out of his shell, but it has taken him a year. Um, yeah. But yeah. Rescue, was he? Or? Yeah, uh, well, yeah, rehomed. Rehomed greyhound. So X-Racer. Right, yeah. Um, yeah. There's, there's some argument about whether they're rescued or not. I think they are. But yeah. Whatever you want to call them, but yeah, that ours our was game. that as well. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. No, it's nice. No, he's good. He's great. He's he's he's, uh, he's good for the whole family, and he, he kind of he sleeps it's... a little bit in the office, which is nice. <laughs> Keeps me company. Which is Excellent. Cool. So, you've spent a large part of your life in creative roles in the RPG industry. How did you get started on that path? So, I mean, the sort of joke answer, but absolutely true, is I was too lazy to do comics. Uh, I, really wanted, <laughs> I really wanted to be in comics and I, and I made a lot of comics and sold a lot of indie comics. I did all right selling comics. But when you look at the sort of career path ahead of you on that, if you want to get into the sort of bigger titles and pre- work on a monthly, you know, it's like 24 pages a month. And you start to think, you know, and you sort of got to be able to do a page a day. And then you realize it's just a page a day every day. And, and I just thought it wasn't so much laziness, but I just thought, gosh i don't really want to do that i I don't think that's you know i I trained as a painter i got a fine art degree for my sins in in like abstract painting which you know was was good to have learned a lot of stuff through that you get that where did you get that degree uh nottingham Uh, all right okay yeah nottingham trent um but uh, yeah no it was good yeah it's good I, i made some really good friends there and i learned an awful lot a lot of it was self-directed which was really important i mean it was kind of a bit of a lackluster course in that we we had a, a tutorial once every five weeks and then it was just <laughs> contactless time really there's no very little so you either did it yourself or you didn't do anything you know so that was cool you had to grow up a little bit i think on that and if to sort of resolve that you actually wanted to make paintings or whatever you know your specialization was but yeah Oh, I did did painting. Um, yeah, I was really into comics and always always into sort of fantasy art and all that. So I started out as a as a freelance illustrator, um, which I did for many years, probably about ten years. I was working on like L five R card game. Well, was a Warcry, uh, Warhammer Historical for a really long time. I worked there. Did all, all right, yeah, books, okay, um, which was great, brilliant experience. I mean, they would hand me a whole book pay me half up front which was amazing because it was quite a lot of money you know that, uh, that is good for that bit of that period yeah yeah it was and but it, but it was 40 illustrations or something a book and i was just sort of art directing myself pretty much the the guy running rob broom who's a lovely guy brilliant bloke still in touch with him um he would sort of give me some pointers but we pretty much had a sort of format down pat and i would just go off and do it and and head into not with my ddr or whatever it was with the artwork on by hand which was nice lots of good stories from those times um i mean prior to that i also did i worked a bit in film and tv i used to store bob the builder um oh wow okay yeah i was like a proper commercial i used to do props wow. and i've done all sorts of nonsense but yeah yeah I, and i didn't really like that either a lot of it's gonna be i didn't really like these things so <laughs> i ended up you know eventually i found my way into role-playing games and liked it and, and stayed there um kind of card games as well card games role-playing games board games all of that stuff and, and and fantasy art, which I've always loved. I mean, if you're familiar with my work, I like sort of green yeah. and brown, gnarly <laughs> stones, <laughs> people in fur clothes, you know, it's just what I've always loved. Ah, the three staples of fantasy art, green, brown and fur clothes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> what, what was the sort of first, what, what was the first RPG you worked on? 
there was a game called the first RPG would have been uh, Dark Continent by New Breed Games, which was Dave Salisbury, who now runs Fanboy Three in Manchester. Lovely block. All right, yeah. If you hear this, and yeah, yeah, they gave me my first kind of break in RPGs, and at the same time, I was working for. Uh, AEG on the Warlord card game. I don't remember that. It was like a sort of D20. Yeah, I remember it well. Yeah. Fighting game. Yeah, I did loads. I mean, I ended up doing about 300 cards on that. I did loads on that. I never yeah. connected your art with that, that game, actually. I have played a bit of the Warlord RPG, art of CCG, and now thinking back, yeah, there's, yeah, I can totally I see it. I remember some of the famous ones that I did, well, but I can't remember anything about it. <laughs> years and years ago in fact before while i was at that point in my career i was also working in a comic and game shop i worked for traveling man in leeds and i used to that was brilliant because there were a couple of guys who were like full-time illustrators and artists who used to come in there and get their comics and i used to get to talk to them so it was kev walker obviously who's like an absolute legend i am still completely starstruck when i meet kev i'm not starstruck by many people but kev terrifies me which is stupid because he's lovely and really nice and would be totally <laughs> uh wayne reynolds used to come in and get his comics uh again lovely lovely guy speak to wayne quite a bit he's great uh ralph horsley also lovely guy we helped him make his art book this just this last year brilliant guy one of my best friends actually is ralph um but it was brilliant to be able to speak to them and see people who are actually making a living doing what i wanted to do which is so important you know that you can go well if yeah. they can do it you know, maybe I can make half my living. You know, if I'm half as good as them at it, maybe I can, you know, cut down my day job a little bit at a time or something like that. But yeah, no, it's good. But yeah, there was the working on Dave Salisbury's Dark Continent and then, yeah, AEG. And then Slay Industries was the, the next thing I did. Oh, okay. Yeah. Contract directory for them. So, like, everybody's ever worked in the role playing games community in the UK, basically. It's, I've worked on Slay. Um, but yeah, so that's the sort of start of the Scottish connection, really. Yeah. When did it sort of become a full-time job for you? When, when did you sort of like completely switch to doing art for RPGs? I think it was, was it about 2001, I think. 2000, 2001, I went fully full-time. And it was really, I had worked, I was working at Travelling Man four days a week. And I sort of said to myself, if I could earn, I don't, it doesn't matter now, it's so long ago, I was only £500 a month at Travelling Man, which I can live on, which is sort of a bit weird now, isn't it? When you not, not on today's money, but yeah. Yeah, today's <laughs> money, you can't. Um, but uh, yeah, so I was paying my rent and everything in mm-hmm. the comic shop, and I thought if I can earn reliably that same amount of money while working at the comic shop, and yeah, then I, then I can quit the comic shop, and that'd be fine. Now, I sort of always used to average out what I earned across three months, and I was always ready to like quit if i didn't earn enough money it was very important to me that it paid the rent and if it didn't it was sort of pointless and stupid it was a bit harsh when i look back but that seemed very important sort of samurai ethic that either i made the money or i quit um yeah maybe it's fair maybe that was maybe it helped probably did took it very seriously i mean you know obviously i still take it very seriously now but you know in a sort of slightly more relaxed way <laughs> yeah no it's good though i mean yeah great times working on stuff there it was it was very enjoyable actually being a full-time illustrator was great it was a really good job it did get a bit weird where you can start to lose the connection between doing work you'll have like a really really busy month where you work all the hours and then nobody pays you anything and yeah i can imagine what yeah it gets a bit weird you're like but what what does any of this mean almost you know so um yeah, I was then offered a full-time position with... I'd started doing quite a lot of freelancing for Cubicle 7. And I was yeah. offered uh, an art direction role there. I think that was one day a week, first of all, if I remember right. Wow. I mean, again, we're talking sort of quite ancient history now. Um, and yeah. I just gradually worked my way up through through that company. I was still freelancing. I mean, I was freelancing on D&D and all that. I, for, I forget this stuff. There was two years where I did... I worked on 12 books for D&D. And I just wow. forget these things. Yeah, I know. I was like, I was doing quite a lot <laughs> on actual D and D, which you forget. But at the same yeah. time, I'm work- I was working on like Ron Edward Spione, Spione, and uh, oh wow, there's a blast in the past. I know, yeah. right? I must dig yeah. that out. I want to read it. And uh, Matt Snyder's Dust Devils. You know, I had yeah indie credibility. Let me tell you. But while also working on, <laughs> which was sort of amused me greatly. Um, but yeah. Oh. It, the sort of yeah losing the connection between getting paid and the work you were doing and and then starting a family kind of pushed me towards a full-time position at cubicle seven yeah so i became art director there and then 
worked my way up there to eventually become uh, deputy CEO for a few years and creative director. So I was overseeing all the sort of creative endeavors there for a few years, three or four years, I think that was. Um, well, let, let, let's let's get into a little bit about your time at Cubicle Seven because, like you just said, you've been you've been art director there, you've been deputy CEO and creative director. What what was that journey like moving into sort of like full time work for a bigger company, uh, having been freelance? Uh, what those kind of roles entail, and what is it like working on like a, a big franchises like Lord of the Rings, Doctor Who, that Cubicle Seven owned right now? Well, sorry, Cubic 7 no longer own Lord of the Rings, I guess, because Free, Free League now have it. But they did. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, did, they did. They did at the time. Um, yeah, it was quite daunting because, you know, I'd spent a lot of time not really having a proper job. And prior to that, only really working in either sort of creative stuff or or then in a sort of part-time retail environment, which I really didn't felt feel like was me. You know, I was I was looking to get... Obviously, you got to pay the rent however you can. Yeah. Um, so it was quite challenging because I suddenly had to do things like spreadsheets and, you know, that we'd never used and work <laughs> pretty quick. But I mean, I sort of learned what I needed to learn about a week, really, and I still use the same pathetic level of spreadsheet knowledge now. I, I know to how to do what I need to do, you know. Um, but that was really good, actually. I was given a lot of creative freedom. Uh, it was a really good partnership for a long time working. I was definitely fast friends with Dom, who runs owns cubicle seven um angus was still there when i first joined um sure obviously angus moved on i'm trying i'm the timeline's a bit confused i could sit and work it out but it's not particularly interesting so for so you know angus had founded the company um and then don came in as a partner and then i came in as a full-time employee um angus moved to some other things and then i sort of started to move up then you know to that got me in full-time and then yeah creative directorship I mean that was pretty daunting because I was I was sort of commissioning all the all the creative work and overseeing all the lines and there were fairly regular shifts around between towards the end of my time there we didn't have any line developers anymore the, the sort of there was a change in the model and I was okay. managing directly all the line which was absolutely exhausting to be honest I mean it wow was yeah work for any one person but yeah working on those big ones I mean I nearly didn't do the the one ring gig I did the I took on the illustration work initially on the one ring before I was working for them full time. And that was very daunting. And I nearly turned it down because I absolutely love Tolkien and always have. And, you know, if you have to sort of commit to that and put your mark on it, I mean, I, people are very passionate. I'm very passionate about it, you know, and, and it's fairly terrifying. Um, but, you know, but then you think, well, look, what are you doing this for? If, if that sort of job comes along and you turn it down because you're frightened, which well, you just, again, just quit. <laughs> yeah what's sure. the songs for Drella line you're going to play the museums like some dilettante is you know it's exactly that moment we go well step on up um and, and that was amazing because i had a real meeting of minds with francesco nepatello again who i'm still very good friends with francesco yeah so he, he's the designer of the yes RPG, or what was yeah. at the time yeah yeah him and, and marco maggi who who um Marco tends to be more in the background because his English is not quite as good as Francesco's, but that's a shame actually because Marco's a really lovely guy. But yeah, yeah, I've really got on with with Francesco. He'd seen my work on the Dragon Warriors RPG, which sort of helped me get that mm-hmm. gig because that thing that I do, whatever it is, the sort of yeah, gnarly stones and you know loose brushwork <laughs> is what they were looking for. Um, and yeah, that that all, that style really developed through the One Ring, and and it was all very much based in history the the sort of stuff coming from warhammer historical having done like the age of arthur book and shield wall and all that i, I knew quite a lot about um early med- the early medieval period which you know one of tolkien's big influences and certainly not his only influence but it, it really helps visually to tie all of that i think to to some historical models and have the have the sort of uh what would be the word the sort of vocab visual vocabulary to mix it up a bit so you're not slavishly doing you know oh the people from gondor are these people and the people from rohan are sure. these people. you can sort of mix a few languages um visual languages if you like which i was able to do which you know it was nice to get to flex all um yeah always really daunting really upsetting when like the first big painting i did was rivendell and again, I'll talk about the deep end. You know, I just go and paint river. I'll crack on with Yeah, just, just do that, obviously. Yeah, just do it. And I mean, you honestly, you know, I've got another good story about that because I worked with John Howe as well. Um, oh, wait, right. There was one time, the, the cover to um, uh, 
Tales from Wilderland, the the first supplement for the world. Oh yeah, sure, yeah. John didn't have time to paint it. He'd sketched the cover, but he just didn't have time because obviously he has other huge commitments. I think the Hobbit movies, I mean, if I remember rightly, uh, were, were taking up his time. And he had said, I mean, gosh, what a thing. He had said, well, why don't you get that guy to do it? Look, he could take my pencil sketch. So I find myself like sitting at my monitor looking at this John Howe pencil sketch and you actually have a moment where you've got to like put paint on it. <laughs> <laughs> I really made myself laugh. <laughs> it's on nervous, terrified laughter. Because what a moment, yeah. you know, you're just going to mess this thing up. I mean, thank God for digital so you can redo it. Yeah. But, um, yeah, this is amazing. And the whole thing felt like that, really. And it, and it felt like getting away with something because we decided to not cleave to the movies at all and we wanted it to look different mm. to the movies it was a different license to the license the movies operate on so you have to be very careful to steer clear of all that stuff i hate it to this day it makes me twitch when i see stuff that is in the wandering role-playing mm. game that is clearly from the movies it shouldn't be there i don't think um you know in just my opinionated opinion you know, people can yeah you want. You know, it's, their, it's their gig now um sure it makes me cringe so, yeah, no, and, and we got away with it. People liked it, which was sort of miraculous. But, you know, what can you do? But, yeah, very daunting and very um, sort of humbling kind of experience in a regional way, actually. But, yeah, it was good. Did you, have much, did you have much involvement with the Doctor Who RPG as well? Or yeah, I did. After yeah, your time? Yeah, no, no, I was creative director through that. So I was art director when just when they'd released a much-delayed, like, second edition with Matt Smith on the box. I was kind of full time around that, and then yeah, I oversaw sort of the like the limited edition, anniversary edition. Um, what else did we? All sorts. I mean, we did loads and loads of books. All the doctors' source books, um, all of that jazz was on my watch. Had a lot of good fun working with Andrew Kenrick, who was previously been the editor of White Dwarf, and we hired him as the oh yeah um, head of editorial. Well, yeah. Yeah, yeah, did uh, Dead and Night RPGs, Andrew. Yeah, Dead and Night, Dead and Night, Cold. No, yeah, he's Dead and Night. Yeah, he's a dead knight. Yeah, I used to, I used to uh, chum around with him in the Collective Endeavor many months ago. Yeah, I mean, that was good stuff. When the Collective Endeavor, that comes up a lot even now. I mean, yeah. how, how to work on an RPG booth is is laid down by the Collective Endeavor, and that's required reading, I think. Yeah. We'll get, we'll get on to all that, because that brings Malcolm into the story, doesn't it? But um, Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, yeah, worked with Doctor Who. Doctor Who was great. Loads of meetings with BBC, all that was good. And we did um, the Doctor Who card game with Martin Wallace. That was another terrifying one where I had to art direct the Martin Wallace Doctor Who card game. And I only had one plan, you know. <laughs> you know, sometimes where you got, sometimes you can't have several approaches and you can just sort of go, look, well, we could do this or we could do that. I only really had one idea that I really believed in and I would would have felt it was a total waste to go, I'll make up some nonsense to also present. And Martin, you know, he's a plain speaking fella. You know, he says what he likes and quite right too. He's, you know, legendary designer. He's got every qualification to to speak plainly. And I'm not, this isn't euphemistic. He's not horrible. He's a lovely bloke, but he'll just tell you if it's rubbish. Yeah, <laughs> um, um, that's good. <laughs> uh, he, he, luckily, he liked it. I was absolutely terrified. That was proper terrifying, actually, um, doing that. So he liked the design for all of that stuff. So, yeah, that was that was nice and we really stripped those cards are really stripped back and we did two editions of that card game the second one was sort of my ideal really everything was paired right back frames you know there's not going to be none of those magic the gathering style frames on cards um it's been a while since i've done any card game art direction but that sort of stuff used to really make me crazy that card games apparently have to look like like Magic the Gathering in some quarters, you know, it's like, oh, well, there'll be artwork at the top and have a little computer-generated box around it, um, you know, but we got rid of all that, which was lovely, really cool. So you've you've kind of moved on from that now. You've established Handiwork Games over the last few years. Uh, you've moved into being an independent publisher. So what made you want to pursue that, that life? So I think, I mean, the, the sort of short version, which uh, people like Chris... Brammers from Green Ronin will tell you. It's kind of the curse of Warhammer, really. Warhammer 4th Edition was a very unpleasant project to work on. Uh, it was incredibly stressful. The clock had been run down really far on that project. Um, and everyone just fell out. I mean, it's as simple as that. Um, it was very disappointing the way it went down. Um, friendships were busted up by that. There were some nasty actors involved in all that as well who kind of wanted my job and got it, you know. Um, but it was wow. time to go, really. It was over. It was, you know, 
these things sometimes come to an end, don't they? Um, and the time was right. Very quickly, I realized I should have moved on a, a lot sooner. You end up in a position where really you should just go and do your own thing. You know, you, I was paid to have a lot of ideas. I was paid to be sort of number two in the company and made a lot of calls when it was necessary for me to make them in support of the boss and so on. Um, but I think there comes a time where you're almost too big for the role, you know, not too big yeah. as in too clever or whatever, but just, you know, <laughs> you, you're used to making a lot of calls, you know, and, and yeah. it gets to a point where, well, you should just go and do your own thing, which is, you know, if, if you've got all these ideas, go and do them. Um, which yeah. I said to myself, nobody said that to me, but that's, you know, what I did. And I thought, well, it's, it's a bit of an experiment. We don't have an about us page, which I want to put right this week. Um, <laughs> some, there were some sensitivities when we moved on because quite a lot of the team came with me and I didn't want that to be upsetting to anyone. It, it, on our about us page, you'll read eventually I ever get. Uh, it's a bit of an experiment, really. I wanted to run an organization that was really sort of flat management structure Everybody that works there for any length of time has a little stake in the company. Eventually, don't tell my business partner, but I would like to eventually move it to a complete co-op, um, which I think we'll do. I mean, there's some there's some money to be repaid. I've managed to win some investment, you know, when I was setting it up. Yeah. Needs to, you know, we need to finish off repaying all that kind of thing, you know, so that the, the person who gave us a huge opportunity is rewarded for his massive kindness and massive punt that he took on us. But but once that's all, you know, I think it's it's the way forward. Really, is is much more forward looking kind of um, co op yeah. model. We do stuff like we work four days a week. You know, at the moment I'm not working four days a week. We've got so much on. But starting in January, we just thought, well, let's try all this four day a week thing and see how we go. And it's been brilliant. It's been really really good. Everyone gets yeah. I, I I managed to get four days a week last middle of last year at my job, and it's been the best thing I've ever done. Good, isn't it? You get a lot more done in four days because you're just not pacing. I mean, it's just, it's absolutely obvious, you know, yeah. you're not pacing yourself for five days and you've got to get stuff done in four and you do. Yeah. It's good. I like absolutely. it. Absolutely. It's really nice. Right. It's nice to be able to just sort of make those decisions. I mean, like the, the name Handiwork Games was I really wanted to run something where, like, the people that you speak to when you interact with a company, well, mostly it's me. Do you know what I mean? It's like, and it's not so much about all me, 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 but the people who make the games are the people you speak to. And it's very one-to-one. It's very sort of, I suppose, like artisan stuff. You know, we're, we're a sort of atelier workshop where the people who are representing the company and the games are the people who made them. And I think there's something sort of, I mean, maybe it's all a bit naive, but it seems to be working. <laughs> it's all right, you know. And, and I mean, some, interestingly, the other day I was asked, why do you, you know, is there a reason you don't have any licensed products? So say, and I've been in various talks about licenses and so on, but that kind of stuff and a, a, a big head count and it's all big. Do you know what I mean? It requires a lot of fuel to keep that engine running. You pay big advances to things and it's really stressful. I kind of, you know, I serve my time in that. I've done them. Yeah, sure. Lord of the Rigs, Doctor Who, <laughs> yeah. Warhammer. You know, I think I, there's not really anywhere to go further higher up my the 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 ladder that i'm interested in so it's been you, you wouldn't want to work on the marvel universe role-playing game then no i would not ian no <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's really interesting to to move out from under like sure. i'm trying to think if there were any license i can't say there's been any licensors we worked for who were sort of horrible the bbc were lovely sophisticated games robert hyde who um owns the one ring and all that jazz he's lovely 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 guy, really nice. I mean, I got on so much better since I left, and and all that that sort of pressure that comes with it can be really. I think if you're a really creative person, you don't necessarily want all that. Um, it's all right, you know. It's it's nice for a while. I like the. Uh, it would be foolish to claim I didn't enjoy the medals and the, the <laughs> sure duration that comes with it. But but you get to a point where you've you've done it. You know, I don't I don't care. You know what yeah. people think really weird it's a very weird position to be in you know it's all right we just do what we want yeah so w- one of the early projects you did was beowulf which uses yeah. the current edition of dungeons and dragons can you tell us a little bit about that project and how you approached adapting the fifth edition rule set yeah because it's, it's quite a strong adaption it's it's for one player and one gm and it, this came about because we sort of gathered a little team right at the beginning and thought, well, what do we want to make? You know, you can make and what, what do we want to do and what do we know about? And of course, there's a sort of history angle. There's the sort of early medieval stuff. There was a load of stuff I wanted to do sort of inspired by 
Tolkien's influences, one of which is Beowulf, obviously very strongly, um, that you can't really do in the licensed game, you know, because it's not, we we were sort of, we were never limited to particular geographic areas, but the game limits itself to quite a narrow focus. Um, like one thing, I never, I never got to paint any sort of ships or seascape or anything like that, you know, and that was almost, you could you could cite that as an influence. Beowulf thought I'd get to draw a load of ships. <laughs> not, and I'm not some sort of mad ship fan. They're just, it's just a bit different, you know. But yeah. it's drawing from similar sources um, that, that Tolkien was drawing from. And through chats, it was myself, Jacob Rogers, who's really brilliant 5B designer, works with us. Uh, David Rea, who's also really good. David's got this really sharp mind, actually. I, I enjoyed working with David. And, and sort of slowly through conversation, this idea kind of emerged. It was one that was sort of whittled out of the stuff we had to hand. It was definitely workshopped. It didn't spring out in an instant. Um, it was it was a case of put, pulling together different things we wanted to achieve and wanted to do. And, and the combination of Beowulf being this sort of lone hero and being public domain, you know, it's, it's helpful. Uh, so people would recognize it, but it wouldn't come with the, the burdens of a license. And one player, one GM just seemed really like that's a really cool thing to do. Um, nobody was doing it in, in the 5e space that we we're aware of. I think there's a whole bunch of blogs, natural play, where people are doing duet play. But I don't think there's many 5e sort of duet play products that I'm aware of, at least. It'd be cool to check them out if, if people know of them. Um, but Beowulf's it's really cool, actually. A really fantastic product to work on. It's really nice. and really let us sort of flex our muscles in terms of sort of product quality and all that jazz. Because um, it had to be really good, didn't it? You know, it's the first thing we did. Had to be all singing, all dancing. We had to lay out the stool. There was no second chances to make a first impression and all that sort of cliche. <laughs> but, you know, absolutely true. And yeah, yeah, no, I was very happy with it in the end. We did some fun stuff. Yeah, like doing the the, the subclasses are all... There's the hero class. There's only one class that you play in Beowulf, which I like. It's on Naughty that there's only one class because people are, you know, we've got 27,000 classes in our game. We've got one. And there's six subclasses that are all related to an ability score in D&D. So, you know, it's real old school. You've got your strength heroes and your dexterity heroes. Um, so that all works really well. And it's, it's cool. Good stuff. Wizards of the Coast has recently announced the future of Dungeons & Dragons, doing away with additions and effectively just tweaking the current 5th edition rule set as the franchise moves forward. How do you feel about that change, and do you think it'll affect how companies like Handiwork produce 5th edition adjacent projects in the future? Yeah, it's an interesting one. Uh, it, it doesn't alarm me at all. I mean, it's always a little bit of a worry when there's talk of a new edition coming, and I always try and sort of keep myself calm. Because actually, you know, if there were to be a sudden turnaround on that and 6th edition came out and it was all different and there was no, you know, there was no OGL support and so on, if we couldn't be compatible with the new one, for a little bit, you go, oh no, you know, Beowulf, I mean, Beowulf's like this evergreen product for us. We still sell a lot of Beowulf on, on a sort of weekly basis. Would that all go away? But then you look at it and go, yeah, but to be practical, we're going to have to reprint it quite soon. So if it all went away and we had to come up with something else, that wouldn't be the end of the world. You know, that would be okay. And I'm quite practical in, in that way. You know, I'll have a few moments where you go, oh no, this is bad. But then you think, well, you know, no, it's just all opportunities, isn't it? Different different paths to take i think it's good i think they're on something with fifth edition i know it's sort of a hot topic for people um people sure. really like to say bad things about D and fifth edition i personally really like it i think it's probably my favorite i'm a big fan of like red box D and I like my D and I was about to say old school that's not right uh, that means something else these days I just like simple sort of D and D, and 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 Five E scratches a lot of those itches. I really like a lot of stuff that's in there. Inspiration is great. I really like um, conditions. I think are great. There's some neat little rules packaged up there, and it comes apart, and you can put it back together in lots of different ways. So I, I like it. I'm a fan of Five E, but it doesn't, you know. Apparently, or if you read Twitter, that would sort of spit on indie games as I walked past them in my fur coat. Whereas obviously. <laughs> just made the most ridiculous lightweight storytelling game imaginable. I've always been a sort of pluralist, like we're talking about earlier, you know. I mean, a lot, a lot of people will know that you live in a gigantic mansion from all your Beowulf. Yeah, from all my money. D&D money, yeah. Hey, yeah. All, my GP, all my GP. I've got an yeah, nth level now. Yeah. yeah so the, there's a weird sort of fight there. That, and obviously, 5th edition Dungeons & Dragons has been hugely popular, especially over the last couple of years. 
people finding it during lockdown, Critical Role bringing a lot of attention to mm. Dungeons and Dragons. It's brought it to a wider audience than ever before. Do you think? How do you think that popularity is affecting smaller role-playing game companies like yourself? Brilliant for them. And if they say otherwise, they're idiots. <laughs> <laughs> I just said that to be bad. No, um, no I, think, I think it's really good. I, I do believe it is an all-ships-rise thing. I know there's this line of discourse that says it's crowding out other systems. You want to try to be a publisher before 5th edition, you know, before drive through RPG, before DMs Guild. DMs Guild, like, yeah, like, I get it. If you don't like 5e, right, I get it. I, I was saying on Twitter today, there are certain modes of thinking that come with being a D&D player or starting as a D&D player or sticking as a D&D player that I think harmful is too strong a word, but you can, your thinking can become a little bit rigid, I think. And and board sure. games could be so much more. I totally see that. Like I'm this here. I'm in this hideous classical liberal position of being taking this middle ground position. I don't take that position in much else, to be honest. But uh, I do think it's good for small companies. I think the larger audience for role playing games in general helps. It does help everybody because a lot of people will become dissatisfied with D and D if if it is correct that D and D is not a satisfactory product and does not do enough to represent the entirety of the art of role playing games good people will leave and find other things and i think they are doing that i think we're seeing increased sales in everything i think the indie rpg scene has a problem that it's absolutely flooded because it's so easy now and i know people be upset if i say something's easy because it's still hard work but in comparison to like print on demand it's incredible now yeah. things you can get you know everyone's printing their zines at mixam didn't used to be able to do that like you just couldn't do it it didn't exist and you don't even need to print it at all. You can just no, go exactly. straight to drive through RPG and release things as PDFs. Yeah, it, it, the barrier to sort of production entry is lower than it's ever been. I kind of like. I got used to get in trouble uh, jumping back to the collective endeavor, which I always thought was fantastic community of creators and uh, really stellar people there, yourself included, Ian. Actually, if I may say so. Um, the, it, <laughs> I forgot what I was going to say. <laughs> that was good. That's right. Just, just, just praise me a bit more, just, and it'll be fine. You, yeah, no, it's really good. Uh, the really interesting. Um, I've, I've remembered what I was going to say. I got in trouble there because I suggested the very naughty idea that you could measure success with money, right? <laughs> so, I can't wait to it, which it does not popular in indie circles. But what I was trying to say is, I think you need to be honest about why you're doing something. So you can't, yeah. on one hand, say I am only about the uh, high art. I am about the 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 sort of I'm not bound by commercial concerns. I have much loftier goals, but I'm really angry that I can't get any sales. Well, you can't have it both ways. That doesn't make any sense yeah. at all. And then to go, and it's D&D's fault. Just, I'm sorry, I'm a bit old for that now. <laughs> I just don't think that's true. I think, you know, the, there is, you can see success in a variety of venues for a lot of different types of games. I don't really think D&D's crowded out. I do think if you feel that the design space only exists on Twitter, you would be a bit fed up with Twitter people who like 5e. I think that's I am completely prepared to, to make that concession because it can be quite annoying, can't they? Them, them people, but I don't think they're very representative of the the entire fight. Yeah, I mean, you, you get this in the in the board game community as well. It's like people don't seem to realize that there's a whole conversation happening outside the platform of Twitter, and that not everyone is on Twitter twenty four hours a day to talk about board games. It could be quite. It's just quite sort of quite unpleasant medium a lot of the time. <laughs> I, I sort of dip my toe in, and I do, I've had had some nice times on Twitter, but sometimes you feel a bit like. Wow, this is just set up for people to. People are waiting to just take chunks out of each other, and I don't know. I'm not really. Not There's an algorithm thing there as well, which rewards like sort of the anger to uh, with clicks and and views and that kind of thing. But it's a whole different conversation, I think. Yeah, I think it feeds in, doesn't it? I, I, if I if I had to say, I think that would be really my answer to that whole question is is that actually I think there's a bigger hobby than than the public discourse we see. And yeah, I think it's a lot nicer hobby actually. You know, people are people are all right. You know, and there's, it is a shame the algorithm can't reward kindness. But it, yes, it'd be nice, wouldn't it? Imagine that. Imagine if it did. Wow. She get she get on that social platform. <laughs> mm-hmm. make, make that next kindness. Kindness clicks. 
I did come up with a thing to, I'll just say this because I don't think we'll put it into production now because it will look too much like what C7 did with their Doctors and Daleks adaptation. Um, I might might still do something with it. They, they've, they've done a sort of social combat thing. I like the idea that of reversing everything in D&D. Don't change anything, but reverse it so that hit points are people's resistance to being your friend and all your sort of attacks on their hit points are like sort of friendly behavior and you <laughs> whittle them down and then you overcome the encounter. It's like a gang of orcs, right? And I'm imagining this for no reason at all in a sort of American high school. And there's a sort sure. of gang of orcs in the, in the in the locker sort of corridor thing. What I don't know what that's called. The hall, is it? And uh, yep. and you have to whittle them down so that you overcome the encounter. Instead of killing them, they're just your pals and just, you know, move out of the way and let you get on with your day. And I thought that would be really nice. I think you could do do some nice things. But all, all the mechanics should be exactly the same. But instead of wounding people, you sort of lift them up and, and inspire them to friendship. For that. I would play that. I would definitely play that. That sounds I, I great. Quite, I quite like, just as an idea, I like the sort of feeling it gives my brain <laughs> when I think about being really, you know, complimenting some orcs. And I oh, don't forget to have orcs in it, but, you know, compliment some bullies and then they might feel a bit better. Yeah. You know? Good idea. We'll have to see, won't we? So your most recent project was called Mask Witches of Forgotten Doggerland. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, good name. Now, this is a very different project to Beowulf because Mask Witches of Forgotten Doggerland just leapt whole cloth into my fevered imagination. I had started mucking around with the now very controversial, but not at the time, uh, AI mid-journey. Uh, a friend of mine who is, I think he's like senior concept artist now. He's certainly, you know, sort of super full-time, very experienced member of the Blizzard design team. A guy called Mike Francina, who I knew Mike when he was knee-high to a grasshopper and used to help him with his artwork. He's, the, you know, he's like doing the real job now. Uh, and he just, he had been making these incredible images, these really weird dreamlike, sort of, I to, really hard to explain. And you've got to remember before we had seen the horror that is Mid-Journey now, and I was like, what, what is this? How, you know, and, and I got talking to him and I was, I'd, I'd been working on a little storytelling game called The Silver Road. Um, very, very simple. This had grown out of, I made a slightly embittered Harry Potter pillar, piss take kind of game, sorry, mirth take game. Uh, okay. Where the, the main thing was that the rule of interest in this one page Harry Potter RPG or magic wizard school RPG uh, was. <laughs> Was that when you try to do a thing as a hero, you rolled a dice and it is all six sided dice. And if you rolled anything other than a one, you succeeded at things you were good at, like they do in those books. But if you rolled a one, you succeeded at it on your next go. And it was meant okay. to sort of be funny because, because in, in those books, you know, Harry fails to do something and everyone says encouraging things and then he does it. But I just sure. kept thinking about this rule over and over and, and and there was like something in it. So kind of long story short, because I'm really rambling, that became the Silver Road. That's the basis of the Silver Road, is that you have two things you're good at, which you will succeed at pretty much without fail. And if you, even if you fail, you'll do it the next round. And you come up against obstacles. If you fail against an obstacle, it, it inflicts a consequence on you from a sort of pre-programmed list that it rotates through. And that my classic example is if it, if it was a Lord of the Rings game, Boromir would be good at fighting. So Boromir fighting some orcs. So I like how I just use orcs all the time, really unlikely correct sort of examples. Let's call them troll. But Boromir's fighting some trolls. He will he will win every time, he, every round he rolls a dice, he will, and it's all narrated, he, he will overcome the orcs in whatever way he, sorry, trolls, in whatever way he chooses to narrate, his player narrates how he's overcome them. Unless he rolls a six. Every rolls a six, the, the consequence has a very strong chance of applying, uh, the obstacle rather, of the trolls has the very strong chance of applying the consequence, someone is hurt. It doesn't have to be Boromir, it's just somebody in the scene gets hurt. So sure. suddenly it's, it's really dangerous to be friends with Boromir if you're not good at fighting. Which <laughs> you know, <laughs> okay. sort of seems sure. true to, the, to all that. that. That all happened. And that, that game did really nicely. I just put it out straight away. We didn't do anything. We didn't sort of crowdfund it or, you know, we just made the game and printed it and we sell it on our website. And then, yeah, so that was illustrated by Mid Journey, made by Mike. And then I started mucking around with Mid Journey myself. And again, this is all still Mid Journey beta time. This is before anyone really knew about it. And uh, yeah, it was, I got it making these really horrific sort of masks and 
and and it started to present itself as this sort of deep history prehistoric sort of stuff um and 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 very quickly it ended up in this sort of conversation where i was putting prompts into mid journey and it was showing me stuff and then i was sort of talking back to it about what i was seeing and it was showing me more stuff and i found that really fascinating i don't use any artist names or anything like that i'm not trying to make them look like paintings or artwork it's just and it, it seems to be mostly drawing on photographs actually in the stuff that that we're, we're using um and it just developed really quickly into this idea where you so doggerland first of all we'll break down the name mask witches of forgotten doggerland doggerland is the area that's now the north sea but it used to be land before the um glaciers melted at the, the end of the ice age holocene period the earth starts warming up all this water that's stored in the these huge glaciers allowing doggerland to be you know land it all melts and Dogland is flooded and becomes the North Sea. Over a relatively short period of time, actually, there's a lot of debate we will not go into about how quickly it happened and, and the precise details of Dogland being flooded. But the actual place is really fascinating. They find, you know, fishermen dredge stuff up. Uh, it's called Dogland because of the Dogger Bank, which you might have heard in the weather, the fishing forecast, weather forecast. Uh, the Dogger Bank is named after 18th century Dutch ship, ships, doggers that were cod fishermen and the dogger bank is only it's only like 10 20 meters deep the north sea at that point because the land underneath is right there and they would dredge up you know caveman tools basically and and bits of animals with you know working on the bone and worked antler so you know gradually it became known that people used to live there um and the, the mask witches are something that we completely invented uh based on on the sort of horrible artwork that was coming out of this i say artwork i like to prefer to use the word the images actually the imagery imagery that was coming out of mid-journey um and and i like the idea that there were these sort of people that lived there that looked after the community and had to fight evil spirits that whenever the community of hunter gatherers is falls into disarray or sort of loses its way a bit or there's disagreement it unleashes these spirits on the community that only the mask witches can fight um and me being me you know uh, beowulf is really heavily researched so i've read like everything i can lay my hands on about the mesolithic period in doggerland and and it's a sort of idiot psychedelic fantasy but with really strongly researched roots so yeah it's good but that just happened really quick as a setting unlike beowulf that came whole cloth like conan into robert e howard's mind um so yeah no it's good very pleased with it um, and we did we did a little we did a little Kickstarter and I thought it might raise a thousand pounds maybe because it's a very strange little project. So we did a little week long Kickstarter and it raised twenty two thousand, which was sort of mind blowing and still is. <laughs> sure, we'll come to Mid Journey in a moment. But uh, you, you blew my mind earlier today with uh, some tweets about sort of some of the research you've done into mask witches, including the idea about when bees first came to our shores, which just totally blew my mind. Uh, yeah. What do you think are the benefits of writers really diving into their subjects when writing RPGs? I think something I've realized I'm really interested in is, is other, and this comes way back from my like fine art training. I'm really interested in how other people see things that are from completely different sort of, I'm not really talking about cultures so much, although cultures covers it, but people in very different places to ourselves who who see society differently and like if you're not if you don't have agriculture if you're a hunter-gatherer fisher you don't have enclosures for animals you don't have those kind of food animals that that we are used to you don't have wool for for felt or knitted garments and it's all that stuff that that spreads out in these ripples and changes the way you look at things um like i've always been fascinated as a as a sort of political entity, I've always been fascinated by the loss of the commons and the loss of common land that used to be for everyone and has gradually disappeared. Until now, we don't know that. You know, people can't pay their... Uh, this is not going to be super political polemic, but, you know, we're all struggling with energy bills. Well, there was a time where, you know, the fuel that people used to heat their homes and cook their food could be gathered for free because it was common. I mean, nothing's quite this simple, right? But... We don't even have that idea anymore that you used to be able to collect things and they belong to everyone, you know. What's the um, Levelers song? It's not by the band, The Levelers. It's a, uh, a, a Victorian song about the, le the Levelers and the, uh, the Diggers, rather. Um, 
I'm very interested in medieval anarchists. Anyway, <laughs> going off on a read, but that that's something that I'm really interested in reading about and, and understand different viewpoints. Like in in uh, Beowulf, one of the big challenges to get players to understand is there's no towns in Beowulf. There are just halls. You know, they're like the centres of power, and it's called a mead hall. We don't really go into this too much in the game. It's all implicit, but the person on the throne in the meat hall is the person who divvies up the drinks. You know, if you're in favor, you get to have the good drinks. You get, you get the good mead and, and power is centralizing these individual people. But again, there's no towns. There's no merchant class. There's, you know, things are very different and you kind of, I love all that. And I like exploring that. I think role-playing games is a really great way to explore that. And it just involves a lot of reading. And I think I'm a bit that, way wired that i really like obsessing about a subject and reading everything about it uh, yeah. fair enough so so mask watches does use a lot of ai generated art and mm. it's mostly mid-journey how, how do you uh, as someone who's got a background in fine art and and came up as a freelance artist how do you feel about the rise in ai art and what do you think the future of it is in tabletop gaming it's an interesting thing, this, and it's uh, it's become a very hot topic, and it's a very sensitive mm. topic because the, the first thing it says, I totally understand that a lot of people are very scared for their jobs right now, and I understand why, right? You know, this is it's a big change. Um, I think there's a few things to balance that out. I mean, the the, the immediate I would say, I think in response to it is, I think we will see an enormous glut of AI produced imagery. I think that will ultimately uh, provide greater value to handmade imagery, you know, because it is it is a different thing. You know, if, you, if you're working with a human artist and you can, certain settings really thrive on, on a very close description. See, Mask Witches was made because the AI is sort of uncontrollable. So it's sort of useless for illustration in a way because you can't get it to do what you actually want. It gives you what it wants to give you. Now, weirdly, Midjourney is getting more and more and more sophisticated all the time. And so it's becoming, I think, wrongly better and better. Uh, there's going to come a time where I'm not going to be interested in it because the imagery will be so literal and so in line with the prompts you put in and people will become so able to make it do predict give predictable results that i will lose all interest in it i like it when it was absolutely crazy and weird and frightening you know some of the images yeah. like what is that like we've we've sort of hooked up a computer to artwork and like a nightmare <laughs> i thought it was gonna look like the sort of 80s and be all anodyne and but it's horrific you know i've really inspired by all that and I love the the uncontrollableness of it, but also a really key point I want to get across. I think in a way it's been really spoiled by the way human beings have used it in that they've used it inethically to try and rip off the styles of artists, which has never occurred to me because perhaps because I can draw and paint. I don't need to rip off. Yeah, I don't... I, it never, ever engaged me in the slightest putting in artist names i was already bought in the in the beta version bukinski's name was put in 10 bazillion times because the early iterations of mid-journey did really well with that bukinski style imagery um and for a little while it was all anyone was doing and again that was really boring it's like yeah okay i understand why when you get your hands on it for the first time you want to make the pictures like those ones you've seen and it's quite a thrill because you can do it and especially if you if you don't regard yourself as an artist or an image maker, the thrill at the level of work you can produce in the quantity you can produce it is incredible. I think it's very mean to deny that to people because it is thrilling. But it's been used quite unethically, and this this idea that you can just do away with artists and just have the machine do it. There's been a recent thread on Twitter that was really nasty stuff you know really like ah well you can all suck it up you know you're all going to lose your jobs the ai feeds off imagery it needs artists to to feed it you know or photographers or whatever image makers um sure. and and i think if if the mid-journey people are making out like bandits they would be very very wise to start setting up some art foundations and investing money in art education um and i think they could do some really interesting things with with that I don't think it should be a machine for just rip, ripping off and replacing artists. That's the most disappointing use I can imagine for it. And I sit in a really weird position because I do make my living, a good part of my living from my own artwork. I, my name is in there, you know, a thousand times as a prompt. 
doesn't get anyone anywhere. It's not very good. <laughs> I, I just laugh. I, d- I don't personally feel slighted or upset by that at all, which again sort of feeds. I, I, I'm just not bothered by that. But I know some people who are very upset that their name has been put in and they can see because what the, what the machine mid journey in particular, what it's doing is it goes and looks at imagery that it finds. I am not fully aware of exactly what the limitations on how it looks at things, what those are. This is a problem. You know, it's, very non-transparent and it's just measuring it's measuring it's taking measurements of 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 artwork uh, but but in such complexity that we can't really understand the, the level at which it's measuring and can then use those same measurements and models to spit out things that that don't look like models they look like the thing it's measured i think it's a very interesting time for copyright i don't think copyright can keep up with that this is no yeah that's going to be interesting someone's going to do that at some point aren't they they're going to say hey this ai sampled my art and i'm going to sue the makers of that ai i mean i think there's there's some other possibilities definitely gonna happen yeah and it'll be down to a judge to decide whether it's a ripoff or whether it's like parallel creation and i mean the way it's actually working is not using pieces of people's artwork um, there's a lot of misunderstanding about this that it that it's sort of cutting artwork into chunks and representing it so it's like a derivative work. Under the current setup, it isn't doing that. Now, I mean, another possibility I think is someone like Disney or Getty Images, perhaps the stock the stock photography websites are going sure. berserk at the moment because they this could ruin them more than yeah. it's going to ruin artists. Right, they're more in danger. And I would say to artists that are angry about it, those stock art websites are not your friend. There's a lot of people going, oh, stock art websites are on our side. They're not. They're on their own side. Same for a lot of artists responded with, oh, well, AI, you can't own AI artwork. So we're your friend. You, know, you should be our friend and hire us because you can buy our rights. And it's like, mm. when did we suddenly just be okay with giving up all our rights to our artwork? You know, this is jumping back. Like I had some sad times when I realized leaving Cubicle 7, everything I made was work for hire. Apart, uh, there's, there's some stuff I could dispute because of the way the contracts works. But I don't own any of that. You know, that's yeah. none of it's mine. That That's not, like, the better option for artists, right? You know, this, it's a bit weird. I've seen some weird sort of um, alliances formed around this. But it's. It, I think that's all symptomatic of a huge change. What I was going to say, sorry, Ian, I'm really rambling. What I was no, that's right. Was, I, I think someone like... Getty Images or somebody with a lot of money like Disney might well buy Mid Journey and switch it off. <laughs> I mean, this is a <laughs> that, that, or, that, That's a thought, yeah. Like, buy it to cancel it effectively. Buy yeah, it to like, or, make, or it, make it not it happen within, anymore. Yeah, within yeah. their own organization. Buy it out. Well, yeah. you know, Disney, Marvel, Disney, whatever, that whole conglomerate could just, if they like what it does, they could have it for themselves, right? And, and I mean, there's various people going, oh, that's open source, what have you. Money solves a lot of those problems yeah money can make that go away yeah i think so so i mean i'm not saying oh everything's cool right it's it's a hot it's horrible the way it's gone i didn't start using ai in its current format i mean do you remember right there was another really horrible thing that happened where they opened up the the beta and everyone and their dog could get in which is nice you know as i was saying before it would be a shame to deny people the enjoyment that comes out of image making but but suddenly social media was just absolutely flooded and it was all the same and it was all really empty and it doesn't mean anything. And the time that, see, for me on Maskridge's and Silver Road, the time we save on how quickly we can make huge bodies of work and kind of have these conversations with the AI and really push it in all sorts of different ways, we then have to use that time saved to apply meaning to it. So that it becomes a whole project, like, you know, we're exploring this imagined dogland. And that, to me, means something, and it's it's art of a different kind. But if you just go, I've made a steampunk Zeppelin, I've made another ghost in a hallway, I've, you know, it goes on and on and on. And you're like, I get your excitement, right? Because I get excited making images, but it's not enough in the end. And I hope that faddish part of it, I think, has largely burned out because everyone just got so sick of it. And it's like, yeah, 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 that's step one, you know. But step two is what does it mean? The intention, I wrote a blog blog piece about this on Facebook, the intentionality of art is so important. Um, Yeah. I get a bit vexed because people sort of go, oh, hey, I can't have that or whatever. No, no, but a human being using it can apply that to it. I I am doing that, you know. 
Um, so yeah, it's, it's interesting. I might, I mean, the might, like I say, there might come a point where I just bored of it. <laughs> it's getting too good. It's too good where they're going, Oh, we've improved how it can do faces. And you go, have you though? I liked it when they all looked absolutely wild. Yeah. Just absolutely mad faces. Yeah. Yeah. It was brilliant. And you, 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 paired that artwork to or that imagery to, to a project that it suited and it was all dreamlike and upsetting and it was brilliant yeah but now if it can just pump out like every, all the faces look like barbie now you know and you're like oh is that is that good because they also instituted a, the users can vote on what images are good and i was like no <laughs> oh dear don't democratize that like you know this is a good have you seen the, the photos of things like horrible horrible fans take a picture of say aloy from what's that game called uh for uh, horizon yeah, horizons yeah horizon yeah. zero dawn and all that and and you know she's this quite they've gone quite far down the road and making like this realistic person who looks like she lives outdoors quite a lot and let's not be foolish she's still supposed to be attractive and all that kind of thing but they made her a little bit realistic um yeah and people did these paint overs going why doesn't she look like this and they've made her look like a porn i've, I've seen some of those and it's just astonishingly like, bad oh, no, you need you need some some guidance in your life young men <laughs> yeah. not okay i'm sorry that you don't have wholesome role models <laughs> yeah but but it's that you know and, and that public voting on things is is going to ruin it because it's not going to be able to do anything interesting it's going to do things that are popular um, yeah i'll just be homogenized but eventually yeah yeah i mean i feel i feel for to some degree i feel for say rpg stock artists I'm old enough to remember a time where we begged artists not to sell stock, that they were basically scabs and that they were kicking the bottom out of the, the pricing in RPGs. And I'm afraid there was a generation of stock artists who went, no, we don't care. We want to sell our artwork for two bucks a piece. Um, and we're nice to publishers for doing it. And you go, okay, we just have to accept that that's happened. Um, and that's a thing now. But it didn't, I don't think that really killed any art careers. Um, I think this is a little bit different to that. But yeah. yeah, so funny. The world turns. It's very strange. We all we all have jobs in RPGs because compositors that used to make metal plates, you know, in print printing press, <laughs> they don't work anymore. My father-in-law was a very highly skilled Finnish trained compositor. And of course, it went away. Desktop publishing absolutely killed that job. But if it weren't for desktop publishing, I couldn't do my job. So I don't want to be churlish in either direction on that, you know. Yeah. It, this sort of change is pretty horrific. But also, I hate when people go, it's inevitable. No, it's not, because it could be used ethically. It could, you know, the, the way it looks at things, you know, perhaps needs some examination. I'm very boring because I'm too complicated. No, no, that fascinating answer. No, I, I really want to talk to you about that because, yeah, we, we talked a little bit about Tabletop Scotland about it, and I, I really want to dive into that with you. Uh, so you've recently brought the cult classic A-State back to tables. How did that come Handiwork Games way? And what was the process like reviving that game? Um, like most things, uh, it's Gregor Hutton's fault. We were at <laughs> Gregor has a lot to answer for. <laughs> yes, he had. Damn him. Um, at the previous Tabletop Scotland that was in like 1850 or something before the plague. Uh, <laughs> in the long, Gregor long ago. Was, <laughs> yeah. Gregor was there with a copy of Blades in the Dark and some notes about how Forged in the Dark would really work for A-State. Uh, and it was really, really good. And we had a little chat about that. And, and of course, the worry was that, that Malcolm might not be interested because Malcolm had written all these great games and had just had enough of the industry. He'd been pretty poorly treated by some very aggressive, aggressive fans who just wouldn't leave the guy alone, you know? Um, yeah. So he sort of got out, started a different life, really. You know, he's gone into teaching history and, you know, very fine history teachers as well and and i agreed i would ask you know could we do this and and it won't will we'll keep you safe almost you know it, it doesn't need to be anything to do with you and yeah. and i was absolutely amazed because he agreed which wasn't really something i anticipated was going to happen but he did agree uh and yeah we just took it from there and and he's been amazingly involved you know very much so and i hope it's rekindled a bit of his passion for his own writing he's writing a setting for us for um silver road which is great as well so he's doing some original Brilliant. work um but yeah and really good really uh, we got morgan involved morgan davy who is a genius i think he's one of the best rpg designers working in the indie space at the moment um and one of the loveliest people 
And he, he he's a, a he's a very nice man. I've met met, met Morgan Davy of many moons ago, but yeah, he's a very nice guy. Very nice. Really guy. Like, I I talk to Morgan most days, and he's one of those people who I always come away from the conversations like really enlightened. Do you know what I mean? He's got a lot of really interesting thoughts on everything. Really great guy. Well, can't say enough nice things about him. Um, but yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. He, he did all the conversion work. I think it's really helped a state with the sort of player focus that in the game you play it's a sort of uh, dystopian sci-fi deal with hugely disparate levels of technology in this enormous sprawling city that you can't leave um mm-hmm. and in the game you play you now play troublemakers who have a corner their corner in the city that you define as a, as a group and then you try and improve your corner of the city uh we've added two fortune that we've added the care action uh, which is really cool. And funnily enough, a little bit like the, my, my D&D thing about, you know, knocking down people's resistance to friendship is almost just the, the gross version of what you now do in A-State. Um, it's a far more refined and elegant take by Gregor and, and Morgan Malk, whereas my version is just like, just be nice to walk still, they're your friend. Um, it's nothing like that in A-State, just to be clear. I'm joking. Um, so, yeah, it is, you, you know, it's your Forge in the Dark sort of play cycle where you you improve you improve the quality of life where you live where you attempt to and that spawns new troubles and and yeah things constantly cycle around as you try and push back the the forces of corruption and nastiness uh in in your corner yeah it's, it's a beautiful book so i mean i i, I backed it and mm. um I, I was very briefly i was very tangentially involved in the original way state did a little bit of writing for it way back when i was much much younger and not a very good writer at all <laughs> But yeah, it's it's a fantastic looking book. Paul Boren's involved as well. Is yeah, is Paul yeah. Paul's a permanent uh, member yeah. of the of Handiwork Games? Is he? Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, um, he was somebody I'd recruited at Cubicle Seven, uh, and he came along a little bit after I started Handiwork Games. Um, and he's yeah, he's one of our full timers. Um, does layout and graphic design. Yeah, and one of the one of the creators of A State. So it's nice yeah. that that came you know full circle. I think in part that's that's why it was okay for us to to do it. You know, yeah. The creators because one of them is involved well they're yeah. both involved really heavily but i mean you know at a company level involved yeah no it's, it's a fanta- yeah it's, it's a fantastic link but i love i love blades in the dark I, I really like that system uh currently running a gone which is another john harper game but mm, a state yeah. is, is high on my uh want to run list so that'll be that will be next Check out the three coins as well, which is the role-playing game that they play in the city. So it's a game within a game, and it's really good. That's Morg's game, and it's really, really good. We we went back to the basics about yeah, what how would a, how would a role-playing game be played in the city, and and you know what would what if if in our culture we like gold and XP, what do they want in the city? What's their sort of fancy reward? I love that idea. Yeah, it was good. Really, enjoy- again, really enjoyable. Really easy work as well. It was brilliant because everyone was throwing in these just fantastic ideas, and everyone got it. You know what it was about. But yeah, very nice, cool. So, what, what's in the future for Handiwork Games? What are we doing? So, we're hard at work. Uh, just the other day, I finished up the sort of proper final manuscript for Mask Witches. It was mostly written before the campaign, but you know, you you sit down to actually look at the thing and go, "Oh, there's some connectivity issue needed here." So, all that was finished up. We're, we're hard at work on that. We do a lot of um, we do what we call sort of full full spectrum production services for other companies. So, if you need anything illustrated or laid out, what have you, we have a sort of wing of the company dedicated. To oh, okay, a lot of that stuff on at the moment. I was going to say I can just put a little advert on your show about that. I've seen some yeah, really horrible, some horrible three D mock ups doing the round of books where the pages don't align properly with the three D model. I've got a really good setup for doing that. If you ever, if anyone ever wants book mock ups, box mock ups, talk to me. It's not, it doesn't have to be expensive at all, and I can do you nice ones, not these hideous. The, the, <laughs> the contents of the page sort of drift off. Makes yeah. me mad. I know exactly what you mean. Yeah. Yeah, it's rubbish. Why are they doing that? Anyway, sorry. <laughs> I get all annoyed. That's me. That's the real me. Where I'm like, things aren't being done properly. That's very upsetting to me. Anyway, um, so yeah, we, we've got a lot of work on there. There's a whole bunch of projects. Uh, we recently finished up Paul Michener's Out of the Ashes. Um, that was a very long-standing project. We worked with Paul, which was brilliant. And that's all finished up. That's printing now. Uh, we did all the art and layout for that. Um in terms of our own stuff, we're working on Beowulf the King, which is like high-level play for Beowulf, where rather than controlling a little band of followers, you're controlling whole kingdoms um, and, and 
you know, the, basically like the later part of the Beowulf poem. Cool. He's old and the king. Um, so that's really good. Uh, Jacob's taking the lead on writing that. That's really, really good. Uh, what else have we got coming out? I feel like I'm really forgetting something really massively important that we're working on. But Mask Witches has totally like dominated my time. Um, we're fulfilling, we're finishing off the A State Kickstarter and Twin Seas for Beowulf, which is an adventure collection there, both fulfilling at the same time, which is just eating my head at the moment. It's very difficult fulfilling two at the same time. But I want to get them both out the door, you know. Um, yeah. They're both, we've got both books printed. Uh, America being round. This planet is quite hard. This whole round planet seas situation, very awkward, and I wish it wasn't the way it is. But so that that's you know logistics is eating up a lot of my time. And there's a few we've got a few things on the on the on the go on the quiet that we shall see how they pan out before we say anymore. We've got millions. We haven't talked about Forest Dragon at all, which is fine. But I've got two Forest Dragon games done and ready to go, which at some point I need to shove out into the light. Yeah, really cool. Yeah, it's all fine. Yeah, Yeah, sounds like it. Where can our listeners find you online then, John? So, uh, www. No one says that anymore. www.handywork.games is our website, and you can find everything else from there. We've got a shop there. You can find us on Twitter at Games Handywork. We're on Facebook, all the usual places, Instagram. Um, Yeah, check out our website. There's all sorts of information about all our games on there, and it'd be lovely to see you. Thank you so much for coming along tonight, John. Thank you. Uh, very nice to talk to you tonight about all things RPGs. Um, and we will be back in another couple of months with another on stage. So do uh, come along to our Discord and listen in. We can find all our bits and pieces at giantbrain.co.uk. Thank you very much for listening. For now, bye-bye. Bye.